0: Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroydus. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. In October, Politico reported that Chief U.S. District Court Judge Beryl Howell granted a request to unseal a large chunk of the, quote, roadmap that a federal grand jury in Washington sent to the House Judiciary Committee in early 1974 as part of the Watergate investigation. The, peti- the petition to the court was made by Jeff Shepard, an author and former Nixon White House official who served as associate director for general government on the White House Domestic Council and deputy to Nixon's defense attorney, Fred Boussard. Mr. Shepard is the author of two books about Watergate, quote, uh, The Secret Plot to Make Ted Kennedy President Inside the Real Watergate Conspiracy and The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. Uh, Jeff Shepard, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be with you.
0: Just to kind of start off, why did you petition for this roadmap, and why do you believe its context contents might be important?
1: Well, this started back in 2011. Uh, other people, uh, some 30 history professors, petitioned the court in, in the District of Columbia, the district court, the, the chief judge, to unseal uh, President Nixon's grand jury testimony uh, from uh, 1975. It's a little-known fact, but uh, uh, the uh, after Nixon had resigned and gone out to San Clemente uh, and was too sick to come back for the cover-up trial, uh, the special prosecutor imp- took two grand jurors and flew them out to San Clemente to interview Nixon. Uh, uh, then in 2011... Uh, even though grand jury testimony is supposedly sealed forever and there's no statutory basis for unsealing it, uh, these professors said that this was so important because history demanded it and there was great interest they should unseal Nixon's uh, grand jury testimony. And I sought to intervene because I thought that... uh, It was unfair to take his testimony in the first place, and it was probably what's called a perjury trap that the special prosecutor decided that since Nixon had been pardoned, completely pardoned by President Ford, that he could not take the Fifth Amendment. And they could get him under oath in front of a grand jury, and they could ask him about what his former colleagues did, and he could either tell the truth about what they did or he could lie, and they could get him for perjury. So that a perjury trap is a, a, a way that a prosecutor can get someone who they can't prosecute directly because of the statute of limitations or because of immunity, and they try to get them to lie anew under oath. And I thought that, that uh, my position was uh, twofold. One, Nixon was sick, demoralized, and, and uh, out of office. And the only thing he knew for sure was his grand jury testimony could never be unsealed. Uh, but secondly, so they shouldn't do it. But secondly, if you were going to undo, unseal Richard Nixon's testimony, you you should unseal everybody's. That you, you can't just start selectively unsealing. And so what I did, I was fearful the court would say, well, that's an interesting proposition, but that's not what's before this court. What's before this court is just Nixon's. So I filed a separate petition before the chief judge to unseal everything, all the grand jury testimony, the Irvin committee records, the House impeachment committee records, uh, just everything in the kitchen sink. And the judge did two things. He ruled he would not let me join the other petition. He did not combine the efforts. But he did rule that they could unseal Nixon's testimony. Uh, It had only been done a couple times before uh, in in the history of the United States. They unsealed Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's grand jury testimony out of New York, and they unsealed Alger Hiss's testimony, uh, also out of New York. Uh, And they ruled that uh, in D.C., Chief Judge, then Chief Judge Royce Lamberth ruled that they would unseal Nixon's. And they also uh, denied my petition... Uh, as too broad, but granted me leave to narrow my petition. So I think you were around. Uh, uh, There was great anticipation of the unsealing of Nixon's, and it was posted uh, by the archives. And uh, uh, then it turned out there was no news there, that Nixon was more nimble than people had thought. Uh, He didn't admit to anything. Uh, He didn't perjure himself. And he handled himself quite admirably, and therefore there was no news. It became a non-event. My petition, uh, I sought to narrow it to ask for uh, uh, less broad disclosure, and it sat there pending. And it was pending even though uh, Judge Lambert retired as chief judge. He's still a a senior judge, but he's no longer chief judge. Uh, uh, And then almost out of nowhere... Last year, I think he was cleaning out old cases. Uh, uh, he asked that the the roadmap, which is what I narrowed my request down to, and I'll tell you about that in just a second, he asked that the roadmap be produced uh, for his in-camera review so he could decide whether or not it should be unsealed. Now, let me tell you what the roadmap is. The special prosecutors concluded uh, uh, that Uh, they could prove that Richard Nixon has personally approved the payment of blackmail to Howard Hunt. Uh, and And they concluded this because of events on March 21st, 1973. It's a very, very significant date in a very, very significant week for Watergate because that's the Wednesday morning, March 21st, when John Dean went in to see the president and for the first time described in any detail the cover-up that had been going on, uh, the perjury, the, the payments. Uh, and and uh, John Dean starts out. We have to of the conversation. John Dean starts out and says, you know, you're, you're, things, have, things are going from bad to worse. There's a cancer on the presidency. It seems to be all-consuming. You're going to have to make some decisions very soon that are very significant, uh, and you don't know the background, and I think I think it's time that I, I share the background with you because we're being blackmailed. And he describes Howard Hunt's monetary demands and what Hunt has done is Hunt has told his lawyer to tell the administration's lawyers that he wants 125 thousand bucks before Friday, and this is the start of this week. On Friday, Judge Sirica is going to pronounce sentence on the Watergate burglars, and Hunt realizes, since he's pled guilty, he will be led off to to jail. And what he wants from the uh, committee to reelect the president is payment of $75,000 of his legal bills that are outstanding, and they've always paid the legal bills. And because he says these guys are slow pay, He wants an additional $50,000 in advance, and if he doesn't get that, he may be inclined to tell some of the seamy things he's done for the administration, entirely apart from the Watergate burglary. Now, what's interesting is Nixon learns about that on Wednesday morning, and the prosecutors were able to show that that final payment was made Wednesday night. And so they concluded, because of the proof they had gathered through the grand jury, that they could prove Nixon authorized the payment. Now, you, this is a, can be a logical fallacy. You put it in Latin, and it's, it's done post hoc, ergo prompter hoc. And the rough translation is, this followed, therefore was caused by. But the prosecutors were quite certain that was the only reason the payment was made. And they had Nixon cold. Their problem was Judge Sirica would not let them indict President Nixon. Sirica was of the opinion that you can't indict a sitting president. It's, it's an unresolved question because nobody's tried. Uh, but Sirica announced that. So what the prosecutors decided to do, because they felt that they alone had gathered this information, and the House Judiciary Committee couldn't get it on their own. So they resolved, they had to come up with a way to get this information, this grand jury testimony, to the House Judiciary Committee. And the way they did it was a secret sealed report from the grand jury, and it's called the Roadmap, because the theory was, this is a nickname, The theory was if you follow this roadmap, it will lead you to the conclusion that Nixon needs to be impeached. And that roadmap has been sealed, never leaked. It's been sealed for almost 50 years. And one of the uh, people wrote a description. He was the uh, press officer, James Doyle, for the uh, special prosecutor. And in his book, he says, you know, people are... uh, are going to be surprised when they see the roadmap because it's really not what they expect. It's a 55-page document, and it says on this date, this happened, on this date, this happened, on this date, this happened. And then there's a whole bunch of attachments which uh, constitute the evidence of what happened on a particular day. And so what we think, what we've been told, is there's 800 pages of attachments to this 55-page document. Now, the reason it's done that way is Sirica was adamant that they couldn't uh, uh, include legal analysis or conclusion. They could only report facts. So the special prosecutor sent it up. It was quite something at the time, uh, but the special prosecutor sent it up, and uh, 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 it has remained sealed. And I narrowed my petition to two parts. I wanted it to unseal the roadmap itself, and I wanted to unseal the grand jury transcripts, if they exist, of what the prosecutors told the grand jurors to cause them to name Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator, and to adopt the roadmap, which had been drafted by the prosecutors, to adopt the roadmap as their own and to recommend it be forwarded uh, uh, to the House uh, Judiciary Committee. So that motion uh, has been pending, even though Judge Lamberth reviewed, saw the roadmap a year ago. He didn't take any further action and then you have the development of this past uh, month or so, Uh, maybe six weeks ago, a different group, uh, three very prominent legal scholars, petitioned the court uh, to unseal the roadmap uh, uh, for an entirely different uh, 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 reason. Uh, This is called In Repetition of Benjamin Witt, W-I-T-T-E, it was assigned to the current chief judge, uh, Beryl Howell, and it consisted of representations that the roadmap had occurred, and it, it was a way, a manner, of moving grand jury information from the grand jury to the House of Representatives. And in their petition, uh, they said, this needs to be unsealed because it will provide a great precedent for doing the same thing to President Trump. We want to see what happened back then because we suspect Mueller's grand jury has come into information that the House Judiciary Committee today can't gather, and this would be a way of making that information available to the House Judiciary Committee so they could impeach Donald Trump. And they include three affidavits from prominent members of the uh, 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 Watergate era, uh, John Dean, who was the president's lawyer, uh, Philip Lacavara, who was kind of the who was associate special prosecutor, and Richard Benvenisti, who headed the Watergate task force that prosecuted the, uh, the, the cover-up uh, defendants. And, and it's a nice, tidy little package. And it got referred, as it should have, to the current chief judge, Beryl Howell. And I called, after I saw it, because it was news, this was big stuff, uh, I called Lambeth's clerk and said, you know, I've had a petition urging the unsealing of the exact same document pending for five or six years. And Judge Lamberth looked at it last year. You know, this, this is the same area. So what happened was Judge Lambert's office reassigned my case to uh, Chief Judge Beryl Howell. So now Howell is presiding over both petitions. They haven't been combined. But since theirs was just filed and the Department of Justice hadn't even responded and mine had pending motions, the chief judge started ruling on my petition. And her first ruling was really eminently reasonable. She said that she understood that parts of the roadmap had become public already due to its use in either a trial or its use in uh, the the House Judiciary Committee hearings. So she ordered that those parts which had already become public be unsealed now i mean what she means is those parts of the 800 pages underlying this 55 page document where they've already become public uh they should they should be made uh disclosed as a part of the roadmap and that was supposed to happen on november 2nd and then she directed the national archives which possesses all of this information uh, they can't go read it, but it, they, they keep it under seal uh, to review the remainder of the roadmap and to inform her of who would be hurt, whose privacy would be invaded if it were to be uh, unsealed. And then to there's something of a surprise. And she, she's ruling on my petition, not the other petition. And then archives got their work done early, so it really came out on October 31st. And at 9 a.m., uh, uh, the, the, those portions, which it's said to be uh, 60 70% of the roadmap, was unsealed. Now, not, it's not the document itself. It's the, it's the transcripts and evidence underlying the document. And I think... The Department of Justice still has a little bit more time uh, Justice is representing the National Archives to respond about the rest of the roadmap. But w- however they respond, they're going to respond under seal, so we won't really see it. So the current status is two-thirds of the road of the information behind the roadmap have been unsealed. another third is pending uh, and, and, and it's it kind of a delight the Department of Justice took the position that this second petition, the one by Benjamin Witts, was really superfluous because mine had been filed earlier, mine covered slightly more ground because mine wants not just the roadmap but the the uh, prosecution's representations about the roadmap and about Nixon to be unsealed. So there was no really reason for the judge to rule on that petition because mine mine uh uh was older and covered more and she was already ruling on it now just to finish up because this is all legal stuff there's a separate case pending in front of the dc circuit uh the the dc circuit sits over the dc district courts that has to do with grand jury secrecy and, and uh unsealing grand jury materials And the judge has said, let's just hold both of these petitions in abeyance until the circuit rules in the McKeever case, because that may be instructive and there's no, on grand jury secrecy matters, and there's no sense going out on a limb here. So that's the current status. Now, I did one other thing to uh, uh, add to the confusion. I filed a subsequent motion... uh, Uh, even though the judge said, let's hold this stuff in abeyance, because the Department of Justice asked me to see if I couldn't narrow my request and be more specific about what I wanted unsealed in addition to the roadmap itself. So I I put in a petition, uh, uh, a motion on November 5th. And if any of your listeners uh, want to find that, we can make that available. uh, It's a public document. But it develops the case for why I want the roadmap to be unsealed and why I want those grand jury transcripts to be unsealed. The the other folks think it's a great precedent. They want to use it against uh, President Trump. I think unsealing the roadmap and its related materials will show substantial grand jury uh, substantial prosecutorial and judicial abuse of the grand jury. I think it will show that the prosecutors misrepresented factual material to the grand jury that convinced the grand jury to take its action. And it goes right back to this idea that the prosecutors concluded that Nixon had personally uh, ordered the payment of blackmail to Howard Hunt. Uh, Because I I don't think he did, and I think the witness's testimony uh, proves that he didn't do it. Uh, These accusations were made in secret, so we didn't know, those on Nixon's defense team didn't know they had been made, so we couldn't refute them. I think we could have. And I also think that Richard Nixon would never have resigned if he had known that the reason the grand jury named him an unindicted co-conspirator, the reason the grand jury sent the material to the Hill, was because they were told he had personally approved the payment, and Nixon would have known he hadn't approved the payment, and he would never, never have allowed himself to be run out of office based on a misrepresentation. So it, you know, it sounds like it's all lost in arcane ideas about uh, secrecy of the grand jury, but in fact, uh, we are standing uh, on, on the uh, on the on the verge of showing. That we lost a president because of misrepresentations made in secret to a grand jury.
0: The um, the road the the transcripts of this roadmap, some of those the, the first third that that was unsealed it's all available at the National Archives uh, website. It's on a
1: website. It, yeah, I don't I don't have the website in front of me, uh, but I can email it to you. It, it's uh, uh, it was posted publicly. They don't have to go to the archives.
0: Sure, we'll we'll it's, make. It's, We'll we'll make that link available online as well. Um, what? Um... Yeah, I
1: think what you should I think what you should make available uh, is the New York Times story about the other petition. There, there's then an excellent article by Josh Gerstein of Politico discussing both petitions, and then my motion to narrow the scope of unsealing, which develops my views for why. The uh, roadmap and its related materials should be unsealed, and then, of course, as you said, the two thirds that have already been unsealed.
0: In in that two thirds that which which have been in, unsealed, um, were you able to um, derive any new information from that?
1: No, uh, I wasn't. But I confess, I have not spent a massive amount of time going through it because it. The, the the reason that the judge ordered that that part be unsealed is because it had already come out in one of the Watergate prosecutions or in the House Judiciary hearings. So I just assumed that if there was some real surprise, uh, we would have heard about it before. Now, there was an article, I think you may have sent it to me, where uh, one publication said, well, gee whiz, the grand jury was prepared to indict Richard Nixon on four criminal counts. And my reaction is, yes, they were. There's no question that they were prepared to indict him. Sirica wouldn't let them. But the the, the issue is not were they prepared to indict. It's why were they prepared to indict. And the only reason is because of what they were told by the special prosecutor. Let's go see what the prosecutor told the grand jurors, because if, as I maintain, they told them in error, that, that's my belief. I don't, I, I'm not saying they deliberately misrepresented. They wanted it to be true so badly that they deemed it to be true. And that ended up as a misrepresentation of the grand jury. That's what still needs to come out about Watergate. It's not the grand jurors decided Nixon was a crook. Uh, They did. It's why they did. What were they told? Because they're not running the investigation. The special prosecutor's running the investigation. What did the prosecutors tell the grand jurors? Now, I can tell you from Jaworski's records, from what I've uncovered so far, from the internal records of the special prosecutor, that they were gleeful when they found out that final payment was made that Wednesday night because they thought that proved it. And it's almost like a light switch inside their records. The, uh, they, they then decide, and, and Jaworski comments on this in his materials, they decide they've got to get Richard Nixon because now they believe they have proof of his personal criminality. It's just, I believe they were mistaken. And that's where I think the debate should be.
0: You're talking about the, um, the, the payments regarding the, the, uh, alleged, um, uh, alleged coverup. Yeah, we
1: have to be, we, we have to be careful of how we characterize them. The committee to reelect directly or indirectly paid a total of $425,000 to the Watergate defendants, uh, And they did it in secret. I think that's the main problem. Uh, it It was stipulated at the trial that every dime paid to the Watergate defendants was either against existing legal bills, we were paying their legal bills, or for humanitarian aid because Sirica would not let the Cubans out of jail and their families needed money. So they were given humanitarian aid and... Their legal bills were paid for, and what the prosecutor said at trial was, "We stipulate that that's what it was, but, but if one red cent was also paid to them for their silence, then that's an obstruction of justice, and we can send them to jail for that. We can convict them." And John Dean was saying, as the government's witness, "Well, of course it was for their silence. Who's kidding whom?" So. We have to be careful when we when we say well Hunt was blackmailing the the, the uh, administration. Well that's John Dean's characterization. Uh you could say well Fred Larue who's the paymaster who actually issued the money that he was paying out hush money. That was the, the term used at trial and and the existence of those payments was devastating to the defendants. And and they said we thought we were just covering uh, legal bills and humanitarian aid, but the prosecution was able to put on other people who said, "You got to be kidding!" You know, everybody knew this was we were buying their silence. Now, assume for a second that the payments had been made publicly. Most institutions, uh, uh, businesses, families, when somebody gets in trouble, and they and they put them on administrative leave the institution typically pays their legal fees because the per- what well, the prosecutors don't like that. But the person is abandoned and alone and accused of a crime. And the institution says, look, it's one thing if they can prove the crime, but we shouldn't let the guy's family starve. You know, they were a 15-year employee. They were loyal to us. So it's typical that legal fees are paid. Uh, uh, And and that's one of the reasons I think the prosecution was mistaken when they said Nixon authorized the payment because Fred LaRue testified under oath that he personally reduced the amount of the payment from the demanded $125,000, which includes $50,000 of walk-around money. He just paid the $75,000 legal bill. And i got to tell you, if President Nixon had ordered the payment, nobody, not Bob Haldeman, not John Mitchell, not Fred LaRue, would have dared reduce the payment. And the only number Nixon ever heard was $125,000. So it's, and the prosecutors could never prove a phone call from John Mitchell to Fred LaRue Wednesday afternoon. See, if, if, the, if the call occurred Tuesday or Wednesday morning, then it doesn't fit, because Nixon didn't know about what was going on. The communications have to occur in a very tight window of, of between noon on Wednesday when the meeting with Dean breaks up, and 10 p.m. that night when the money is left in the mailbox of Howard Hunt's lawyer. And the prosecution tried like mad to prove linkage at trial, but they couldn't do it when their witnesses were under oath subject to cross-examination. They didn't back up the prosecution's story, but nobody else knew that that's what they were trying to prove because the original allegation against Richard Nixon was made in secret to the grand jury. So you've got this very, very strange situation where, They thought they had him cold. They told the grand jurors, I think they told the grand jurors they had him cold. The grand jury told the House of Representatives they had him cold. And then when it came time to prove it, Nixon was already out of office and nobody knew about the accusation. And it's remained undiscovered for 45 years. And that's why I'm so, when you look at my petition, and we'll send you the link, that's why I'm so adamant. That we have to disclose what the prosecutors told the grand jurors.
0: Focusing on the cover-up trial, just a, a bit. Who were who were the defendants, and was there anything else alleged besides the paying of hush money?
1: Oh yes, uh, uh, the the comprehensive Watergate indictment. Remember, there's a burglary; they're caught red-handed; they're indicted on September 15th, 1972. They come to trial in January; they're all convicted. Uh, uh, the question is, yeah, but who else knew? Who was running the cover-up? And, and it's very clear there was a cover-up. Uh, uh, the the indictment, the comprehensive indictment for the cover-up comes out on March first, nineteen 1974, and it's in two parts. It's seven people who are indicted for obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and perjury. And the roadmap, uh, that's when the roadmap is announced and a sealed briefcase is dispatched to the House of Representatives. Then that case came before Judge Sirica for trial uh, uh, in October, October 1st. Uh, Nixon has resigned on August 9th. He's been pardoned on September 9th. uh, And the cover-up trial begins uh uh three three weeks after that and uh, several things happened uh seven people were indicted john mitchell bob haldeman john ehrlichman charles colson ken parkinson robert Mardian, and gordy strong uh uh, gordy was bob haldeman's assistant and uh before the case came to trial Gordon Strawn was separated uh, because he was given immunity by the Senate, and the Circuit Court said, you know, you there's an honorable deal here. You can't prosecute him. So six people were gonna come to trial, and Charles Colson pled guilty to a related offense that had to do with the plumbers' break-in at Daniel Ellsberg's office. Uh, so Colson is removed from the case. They dropped the charges because he pled guilty to a different felony. So five people actually come to trial, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, Robert Mardian, and Ken Parkinson. Now, Ken Parkinson was the outside attorney retained by the committee to reelect the president to defend them in the Democratic National Committee's lawsuit for monetary damages for being involved in the break-in. The DNC filed a civil suit demanding millions of dollars because the committee to reelect the president, they allege, was was responsible for the break-in. And Ken was an outside lawyer retained to defend them in that suit. Uh, He was acquitted after trial. Only four people were convicted. And uh, aside from Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell, the fourth person to be convicted was a gentleman named Robert Mardian, and Mardian had hung around after Nixon's re-election uh, to help defend the lawsuit and then had left a month after Nixon was reelected. Uh, and Mardian assumed that they didn't have enough proof that he wouldn't be convicted and was astonished when he was convicted. Uh, uh, but on appeal, his conviction was reversed and remanded for new trial, because mardian's lawyer uh the second week of the cover-up trial fell ill and never returned and the mardian maintained he should have been severed they couldn't it wasn't fair to require him to go forward with a trial when his main lawyer uh, uh who spent all the time with him uh could no longer appear to defend him uh, sirica didn't let him out but the but the uh the appellate court said no 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 you go try him separately but this this conviction's no fair. So in the end, when it was uh, uh, affirmed by the appellate court, the the three key uh, uh, defendants, John Mitchell, Bob Haldeman, and John Ehrlichman, are convicted on all counts: obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and perjury. And the perjury, for each is slightly different, but it's either testimony before the Irvin Committee or testimony before the Watergate Grand Jury. Uh, none of them took the fifth. So they they thought that they could maintain, they did maintain their innocence throughout, uh, uh, maintain their their innocence going to the grave, that they hadn't done what they were accused of. Now, and the issue, Jonathan, for your listeners to appreciate, There really was a break-in, so there really was a crime. There's no question there's a crime. The issue is who knew and who was involved in the cover-up to prevent higher-ups from uh, being accused of knowing about the burglary. There really was a cover-up. The issue for the prosecutor, for the courts, for the grand jurors, was who was involved in the conspiracy. And if you study the law of conspiracy, particularly as it as it existed at the time in the uh, mid nineteen seventies, once once you have established the existence of a conspiracy, it takes almost no proof to to show to add additional defendants. And that was the dilemma that Haldeman, Mitchell, and, and Ehrlichman were caught in. They. They maintained they weren't part of the conspiracy, and the guy who was running the conspiracy, John Dean, flipped, got immunity, and said, well, sure, we were all in on it. So it would be very hard to protect yourself from that, even though there was virtually no intrinsic evidence. Uh, The only tape system occurred in the Oval Office, conversations with the president. If Dean or Haldeman, uh, if Dean met with Haldeman or Ehrlichman or Mitchell uh, outside the Oval Office, that wasn't recorded. You'd have the fact of the meeting, but you wouldn't have any evidence about what the conversation was. And Dean said, I was keeping them informed all along, and they said, we didn't know what he was doing. We thought he was acting as the president's lawyer defending the president's interest. We weren't at risk. It's never been shown in the 45 years since the break-in that anybody on the White House staff, with the possible exception of John Dean, knew about the proposed break-in in in advance. So when the burglars were caught, the White House's interest was in protecting the, the, the White House. What happened at CREEP, which is physically across the street, was going to be determined by the prosecutors. Uh, Nobody thought, particularly after the first week, nobody thought that that people at CREEP were going to escape unscathed. Uh, James McCord, who was there caught red-handed, was head of security at CREEP. And then it turned out that Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, uh, Gordon was... uh, a lawyer for creep and howard hunt was a consultant uh they were heavily involved so nobody was kidding themselves about carnage going to occur at the committee to re-elect the president the issue was protecting the white house itself and that's what they thought john dean was doing Uh, and john dean when uh, faced with his own criminal actions uh, I said, no, no, no. We were all in on this together. I was doing what they wanted me to do, and and the 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 jury believed him. I mean, John Dean emerges uh, uh, as a a, a a potentially innocent whistleblower amongst these evil people, and the other people uh, were convicted on all all counts and and s- sentenced to two and a half to eight years in jail, and each of them served. Haldeman, Mitchell, and Ehrlichman; each of them served 18 months in prison.
0: You had mentioned these ex parte meetings that uh, took place between um, the judge, Judge Sarika, and the special prosecutor, uh, Leon Jaworski. Um, yes. You had discovered these. Um, you had discovered the contents of these meetings um, at, in um, Mr. Jaworski's papers over at uh, Rice University. What did yes. what did you discover about them that um, could call into question the whole trial?
1: Uh, uh, the 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 difficulty was that the prosecutors were so eager uh, uh, to convict Richard Nixon and his and his colleagues that they cut a whole bunch of corners uh, in uh, in arranging the prosecution and in getting the evidence uh, up to the uh, uh, up, up to the hill. Uh, and you don't know which the bigger surprise is that they cut these corners or that they actually left a paper trail that documented what they were doing. And what I uncovered at the archives, uh, which is basically forms the core of my book uh, uh, that was published in 2015, were Leon Jawors- was Leon Jaworski's confidential Watergate file, what, what he had done Uh, He put the really sensitive stuff in a confidential file, and then he took the file with him when he left office in October of 1974. So these were, you talk about a cover-up, these were papers that were government papers that he prevented being disclosed. Uh, He took them back to Texas. He had a full legal career. He passed away. He gave his papers to his alma mater, Baylor University in Waco, Texas, Baylor took its sweet time getting around to making them available. And then it was discovered that amongst Jaworski's papers was grand jury materials. And the archives went down and and basically seized uh, these improperly disclosed papers, brought them back up to archives, went through them on a six-month all-hands-on-deck effort, And then, uh, because I had a a Freedom of Information Act request pending, uh, they made them available to me. And I was the first person to see uh, what amounts to three document boxes of Jaworski's confidential Watergate files. And it documents a whole series of ex parte meetings with Judge Sirica where they work out issues in advance of trial and it documents a whole series of meetings with Judge Sirica where they worked out the roadmap in trial. The roadmap was an incredibly creative bit of uh, legal work that said, oh, yes, we can take grand jury information in secret before the grand jury is through and dispatch it to the Hill. And you can look at their materials And this is a part of my motion. I have attached three documents to my motion. But the first document is a recommendation that they meet secretly with Judge Sirica to warn him of this initiative because the, the initiative is so creative, I use the word bizarre, that they're afraid Sirica will reject it out of hand before they even get to present their arguments. So the recommendation is, let's go see Sareca on the side and convince him of his power to do this. Uh, uh, and then, and of course, we're not going to tell anybody else that, that, that we're going to go do this. We're going to go meet with him uh, by ourselves. And the idea of prosecutors meeting with judges in advance of uh, to discuss materials that are going to come before the judge for ruling is totally improper. Then the second, Exhibit B, is a memo to the file by Jaworski describing that very meeting. And it's one of the more intriguing documents you'll ever want to run across in a prosecution. He, he goes and sits down with Sirica. Sirica says, you know, you've got to get these indictments handed down in time so I can appoint myself to preside over the trial. I'm going I'm to turn 70 uh, soon. And when I turn 70, I can't appoint myself, so hurry up the indictment. And Jaworski says, well, you know, funny thing about that indictment, we want to send materials up to the Hill. Uh, And and, and we think that that, that, uh, we should do this with a secret report, a sealed report, and we want you to send that up. And it's almost like a quid pro quo. We'll bring the indictment in time for you to name yourself if you agree to send these materials up to the Hill. And then the third exhibit, which I've attached exhibit C, is the the discussions on march first, when the indictment and the roadmap are, are issued from the grand jury to the judge. And Jaworski goes into judges' chambers in advance and they rehearse how they're going to handle it. And Jaworski says, I will present the indictment and I will move that it be that it requires special handling. And this is the legal trigger that enables Sirica to name himself, to take it out of rotation, and name himself to preside over the trial. And then we will present this roadmap, and we will ask you to send it to the Hill. So they rehearse what they're going to do in the the, uh, hearing. And then after the hearing is concluded, they meet again. This is all documented in Jaworski's memo. They meet again to go congratulate themselves on how well it went, and they agree they'll be in touch as need be going forward. So you have absolutely irrefutable proof of uh, secret meetings, very, uh, just indefensible secret meetings between the judge and the prosecutor, uh, where they, they pitch him in private on something that's going to come before him in public. Uh, and then the, the the other part that I kind of take great delight in, I know from having been there that the Nixon administration, the Nixon White House, we as his defense lawyers, did not object to the roadmap. Nixon took the position politically that if the material had been presented to the grand jury, it could be presented to the House Judiciary Committee because Nixon had nothing to hide. Now, we didn't know it was the allegation that he had personally ordered the payoff. Haldeman and Mitchell sued, filed filed a motion, to prevent the roadmap from being sent to the Hill, uh, and they lost on appeal, but the White House itself did not contest. So these people in the Benjamin Witt petition, who thought they'd have this great precedent you know, we we got grand jury information on Nixon sent to the Hill, let's get it on Trump and send it to the Hill. Suddenly they're in this uh, quicksand where it's shown that the original effort was improperly conceived, was uh, improperly executed because of secret meetings, and was never contested by the White House, so there was no real uh, decision uh, based on a White House uh, uh, prosecutorial conflict, uh, which makes it a rather difficult precedent to argue today should be used against President Trump.
0: Uh, you correctly pointed out that uh, Mr. Jaworski's papers over at, or at Baylor University is all modern, not uh, not Rice, as I said. Um, but I also want to ask you another question. Well,
1: no, no, just but but just to complete the thought, Jonathan. Uh, when archives went down and seized them, they brought them back up to the National Archives in uh, uh, Archives II in College Park, Maryland, and they returned to Baylor materials that could be made public. But the real materials that are special prosecutor materials are now at the National Archives.
0: At the National Archives, okay. Yes, uh, and they're
1: available for for public review. Uh, but they're they're at the National Archives. Regarding... Now, one other thing that I may add, if I could, sure. uh, subsequent to the publication of my book, uh, uh, James Vorenberg's papers surfaced. He was associate special prosecutor. He also took his papers with him when he left. And what makes the Vorenberg papers so interesting, he volunteered to write the report from the special prosecutor when they were through. So he was taking notes in every staff meeting of what was happening, handwritten notes. He took them with him. These are clear government documents. He took them with him, and they became available for review uh, after my book was published. They're maintained at the Harvard Law Library in their treasure room. And it, it basically reconfirms all of the Jaworski files about secret meetings with Sirica. Uh, and, and secret discussions about what, who was doing what and uh, what the issues of the special prosecutor were. It's a real treasure trove of materials. Uh, I'm, I'm told that my publisher is going to issue a paperback edition of my book, and we're going to include uh, more references to the Vorenberg papers uh, in an afterword when we do that.
0: Are these papers also available online?
1: No. Uh, uh, And I don't think Jaworski's key documents uh, are available online. I think you have to go. They're reproduced in the back of my book. Uh, My, uh, Let me correct that. Harvard's Law Library does not have them available online. But if you go to my website and you click under uh, uh, About the Book, which is across the top, it's the you know their window shades the book the author if you click under the book there's a the bottom tab says new documentation and the vornberg papers are reproduced there. The the relevant section of the vornberg papers is reproduced there we can when i send you all this these other links i can send you the link to the the uh, critical port what i think is the critical portion of the vornberg papers one of the one of the difficulties they've never been turned over to the archives which which is uh i i think terribly unfortunate because they're 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 uh they're not complete uh they were when vorenberg left but four months of his notes have somehow come up missing
0: and the these this is available at jeffshepherd.com i have another quick question regarding yeah. the ex parte meetings um, not its contents, but the meetings themselves. Did the defense, did the, did the cover-up defense have any knowledge of it? No. Um,
1: One of the great, great, great frustrations in life, Jonathan, is all this stuff came out uh, uh, after 2013. So uh, President Nixon, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, John Mitchell, all went to their graves, not knowing about the secret meetings,
0: not knowing
1: about the exculpatory information that uh, on John Dean that was hidden from their defense counsel, not knowing about the Vorenberg notes or the secret uh, uh, misrepresentations regarding Nixon's uh, personal actions, uh, uh, all of that has come out uh, within the last five years if, if I mean it just it, it, it just it, it, it goes without saying if it had come out that there was this secret agreement between the prosecutors and the judge to bring the indictments in a timely way so that Sirica could name himself to preside over the trial, those convictions would have been vacated. There would have had to be a new trial. It's just open and shut. Uh, if, they, if these other secret meetings had come out, uh, the, the government wouldn't, wouldn't have been allowed to, uh, to maintain its prosecution. Uh, that, that's why this stuff remains secret. Uh, I I have been able to show not just Jaworski uh and not just Sirica there was there was a secret meeting that involved four prosecutors uh, four Watergate prosecutors and judges Sirica and Gazelle uh and you, and you just marvel that there's a record of that not of what they said but the fact the meeting existed it's just it is just astonishing is And there all a- of that all of that's in my book uh uh so you don't have to go to archives to find it the documents are reproduced in the appendix of my book
0: with that said is there any is there a possibility for a posthumous vacation
1: well yeah you dream about it uh, uh, you could there is a writ an ancient Anglo-Saxon writ uh, uh, it's called Corum nobis writ of error and it could be maintained uh, uh, by the descendants of that new information has come to light that was unknowable at the time of trial that changes everything, uh, and you could—it's—it's it's, uh, uh, anything but a sure thing. But you could go into court uh, uh, and uh, uh, ask ask the the court to vacate in light of the wrongdoing. Uh, I, I think that will be reviewed again once this roadmap uh, and the related materials comes out because if those grand jury transcripts are unsealed and if they show that prosecutors were mistaken made these allegations and it turns out they were mistaken i think you may have substantially renewed interest in challenging the convictions themselves
0: One final question.
1: Think about about it for a second, Jonathan. What if it were true? What if it turned out that Nixon was driven from office by the mistaken allegations made against him by the prosecutors? I mean, his being named an unindicted co-conspirator, the House voting to recommend impeachment, were devastating to the president. And if those two things hadn't happened, Nixon would have Nixon would have served out his term.
0: No, that's a that's a big question. Um, and, and one one final question: uh, What could the release uh, of this roadmap roadmap um, mean for future prosecutions, especially those of a political nature?
1: Well, you begin. I mean, I I, I don't happen to like special prosecutors that are specially selected. Uh, in in political cases, the, the, the temptation to twist the law and go after people uh, uh, just in a never-ending pursuit uh, is is just is bad all the way around. You you, you can have special prosecutors where there's uh, this California wildfire. You might end up with a special prosecutor uh, in a situation like that if 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 somebody alleges criminality. But in politics, it's it's uh, uh, it's too easy to go specially recruit people with opposing political points of view who can twist and connive uh, and and selectively prosecute people. Uh, When the truth is known, and that's a big issue, because, you know, we're unsure what the truth is today. When the truth is all known, I think, I maintain, the Watergate prosecutions will be an example of massive prosecutorial abuse. Other people will say, no, no, no. All those things Jeff cites were necessary because Nixon was evil. He was inherently criminal. And it's like going after the mafia or the mob. Yeah, you may cut corners, but the end justifies the means. And I maintain exactly the opposite. These people were specially recruited, they hated Richard Nixon. They dusted off statutes that hadn't been used in 30 years to ruin his people. Remember, there are two dozen members of Nixon's administration who are convicted and imprisoned, and Nixon is driven from office. And and they say yes and good riddance, and I say, no, 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 you, you cheated. You just outright cheated, and I got the proof.
0: Our guest today is author and former Nixon White House official Jeff Shepard. Our topic was the actions of the special prosecutor, and the federal judiciary during Watergate, and Mr. Shepard's successful petition of the Watergate roadmap for U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Jonathan, good to be with
0: you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.